Welcome back to the Strength and Speed Podcast. I'm your host, Conquer the Gauntlet Pro and Strength and Speed owner, Evan Preparis. Don't have Brent on the line, but I do have another guest. Before we get to him, though, we'll do a quick word from our sponsors. So this episode is brought to you by Atomic Climbing Holds. Atomic Climbing Holds essentially make rig grips and climbing holds that you can put on your wall or in your garage. Or like what I do is I bring them to the gym and use them for like lat pulldowns. I use them for basically anything with a pulling machine on it like a nunchuck grip and stuff like that. I also have a rig set up essentially in my garage and some of their peg holds that are going across my wall in the garage also. So Atomic Climbing Holds, absolutely great company. They sponsored me and Wesley Kerr for World Service Motor 2018, and we represented them well there. So I'm really a big fan of them. And then on top of that, I've been using them for a couple of years. Definitely helped out my grip strength, as you can see by my uh, presence on the Conquer the Gauntlet team, which is known for its hard obstacles. And then this past weekend at Toughest Mudder East, I did Toughest Mudder with 100% obstacle completion. So if, if that's not proof enough for you, I'm not sure what is. All right, joining me on the podcast, speaking of Tough Mudder, I have a Tough Mudder veteran and an Army, well, I'm sorry, a Navy veteran. So I have uh, Mark James in the podcast. Mark, welcome. Hey, Evan. Thanks for having me on. Cool. So if you don't, if you're not in the toughest motor community, uh, you may not know Mark James because he's heavily involved in that. But a little bit of background on him: he was in the Navy SEALs for five years, so he's a veteran, and he's now a SEAL instructor. He's also was a professional triathlete, and he was a Cat Three cyclist, so definitely a serious athlete there. And now he's doing a lot of tough mutters. He's on about 71 tough mutters total. Uh, and about 11 toughest mutters, which we're pretty sure is the most out of anyone, because I don't think you've missed one yet. Is that correct? Uh, I missed a couple last year. I missed out in Australia and Berlin. Just ran out of dollars to to, to go over there on that uh, on that quest for the Holy Grail. So I lost out last year not doing those. Yeah, and he's on a quest. This, speaking of the quest for the Holy Grail, he's on a quest for I don't know what the top prize in the Holy Grail is called, but Holy Grail is when you get you do a tougher, a toughest, and world's toughest in one season. But they also have another prize where whoever does the most toughers, toughest, and worlds, essentially the highest number of miles over the course of all those events, gets an additional award, gets their name on a plaque. And I know he was in the running for it last year, ended up, I think, getting beat by two guys. But I think this year is your year, Mark. What do you think? Oh, I don't know, Evan. Uh, two years ago, like you said, I got second to some guy named Ryan Atkins. And then last year, I, I think it was third or fourth. Um, a short story made longer, uh, a guy named Charlie Bower, a Brit, uh, ended up winning the Holy Grail, got 400 miles, which is about 70 miles more than Ryan got, and a really neat story behind him. Uh, there's been some stuff on the web already. Um, he did just about every toughest with the tougher beforehand, which is a 10-mile race, and then traveled from across the pond. He lives in the UK to come over. And a lot of it was towards his he had a charity called James's Place. So um, Charlie's a really cool guy. I got to spend some time with him last week over in England. So uh, this year it's going to be challenging. I mean, you got guys like yourself that are hitting sixty-five and or uh, forty, uh, sorry, fifty-five miles at toughest, and that's 
that's hard. That's hard to, to compete with. I'm an older guy. I'm 52, and keeping up with you young bucks is going to be really challenging. I think I'm actually ahead of you in the top prize for the Holy Grail as of now, but I know I don't have as many planned on my schedule, so I'm pretty sure you're going to overtake me in about two months. Or well, we'll see. When you go 100 miles at Worlds this year, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be looking over my shoulder, Evan. All right. So <laughs> before we get up too far off track, uh, this episode we're going to be talking about his triathlete career, kind of how he transitioned into Tough Mudders. Obviously, we're going to talk about his quest for the Holy Grail. And we're also going to talk about he recently raced Toughest Mudder UK while I was doing Toughest Mudder East, which is the same weekend. So we'll compare and address them. And then we're also going to talk about his time in the Navy SEALs, specifically mindset and kind of what's separating out the guys who are making it from the guys who are not. So I guess let's start chronologically. So which one was first, the SEALs? Yeah, I graduated high school when I was 17 years old. Uh, had no real plan. Guys at graduation were saying, hey, where are you going to school? I'm not really sure, I said. And uh, I happened to go see a recruiter, and I saw a poster with guys jumping out of airplanes and running around with telephone poles. I'm like, hey, I want to do that. That's really cool. Uh, I did go to a year of community college. I wanted to be a, a competitive swimmer. And then after a year, I swam and then saw the recruiter again, and I joined the Navy. And my, my goal was set on being a SEAL. Uh, one of the toughest training programs uh, in the world, you, you, as you probably know. I mean, it's uh, Rangers uh, are for the Army, and and you got SEALs in the Navy and Marine Recon, and I, I wanted to be the 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 creme de la creme and and uh, just go for it. So uh, I was a SEAL. I uh, did a few deployments, and and then I I probably made one of the biggest mistakes of my life. I I got out after just five years. And uh, started doing, I'd been doing triathlons in the Navy and decided to kind of try and find a career being a pro triathlete, which was, I mean, I think the hundredth ranked golfers caddy makes as much as the number one triathlete, you know, very, very difficult. Um, I'd find sponsorship and I get bikes and drinks and, and bars, but as far as making money per se, it was, it was very hard. So I, I learned to make money by coaching. And uh, coached high school and then the college level and uh, and followed that path instead. Awesome. Well, take me through like a week as you know when you were, you were training for specifically what Ironman distance, which is two point four mile swim, one hundred and twelve mile bike, twenty six point two mile run. Yes. Yeah, so I would get up at six, and I happened to live uh, up in Northern California on the Russian River. So I had a little cabin behind my grandparents place i get up at six and i'd swim in the river for an hour and then i'd eat for an hour and then i'd ride my bike for five hours and i'd take a nap and i'd go run for an hour and it was just repeat on and on and on and to do the ironman triathlon in hawaii is the, is the granddaddy of the all triathlons you had to qualify and to qualify you had to place either top three overall or win your age group and so it became a game of uh, qualify and then go do the race in October. And I managed to do that 10 years in a row. Uh, I was very, very fortunate to, to follow that dream. My grandparents were um, my, my primary sponsor. They, they paid for my airfare and I, I got to stay kind of at their house. But I was kind of a, a nomad of just uh, swim, eat, bike, run, eat, bike, run, and just uh, keep on going. So yeah. it, was, it was difficult. How many training hours were you putting in a week, if you had to guesstimate? Well, I um, found out that if I swam with swimmers and ran with runners and, and biked with bikers, got category three, four bikers, I would get my butt kicked in all three of those 
disciplines. But if I was to challenge one of those athletes in the triathlon sport, I would just absolutely uh, obliterate them. So uh, a good mileage week was 300 on the bike, 75 running, and maybe 25 swimming. On top of that, I was going to either undergrad or grad school, and I was also painting houses to make a living. And um, so I was really, really juggling. Uh, I did have a girlfriend who I ended up losing because, which is a good thing just because I was always training. That was my focus. My main priority was train, 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 and, and, and try and make it as a, as a triathlete. Yeah, those are insane volumes and, uh, very impressive. I like that you said that you were you know, essentially swimming with swimmers, running with runners and biking with bikers. Cause I mean, that's what I can, that's what I do for obstacle course racing. I run with a local run group on the weekends. So I, I have someone to like essentially pace off of and someone who's just a pure runner. And then I try to like train with ninjas, um, when I can, like during the week and stuff like that. And then I'm training my own too. But yeah, I think, I think, th- and I think that's the best way to get better. You know, you find someone who's very specialized and you train with them. I know that's what, uh, jumping ahead a little, but that's what special forces does in the military you know, we hire people to teach shooting and we hire people to teach offensive driving and other skill sets that we're not necessarily experts in and they are. And then you can like take, you can put yourself to a higher level overall if you're taking the best of each of those. So Excellent. I, I totally agree. In fact, as a Navy SEAL, you know, people think we're the best at shooting and jumping and diving. And it's not that we aren't. We, we hired the best shooters and divers and skiers and climbers. And we got them to teach us all our secrets. And you're, you're on the right path there. Um, I kind of kick myself because I live in Coronado, California. And my next door neighbor is a 100-mile running racer. He does four or 500-mile races. Um, and he's very good. And then my other neighbor lives in Arizona but has a vacation house here and he's a world-class marathoner and he's 60 years old and he's still going sub three hours and why I'm kicking myself is I've yet to train with either either (laughs) gentleman I just see him in passing and kind of wave I'm like man those are the guys I need to run with and then I got some guys at work that are very uh uh, successful climbers they go to the climbing wall climbing gyms and you know the sport of OCR Sometimes I ask myself, why am I doing these these OCR races that require so much upper body strength and pull-ups? I loathe pull-ups. I hate pull-ups. I hate burpees. That's why I don't do Spartans. I'm a swimmer. I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a long-distance ocean swimmer. I work at SEAL training uh, in Coronado. I'm a BUDS instructor, now civilian, and I've done over 600 miles of nautical miles of uh, swimming. And I win every swim. I can, uh, I've been blessed by God, I guess. I can swim in a straight line and I can push fins really fast. And why I'm not doing these swim run races in Scandinavia and still making money at 50 is just beyond me. I guess I, I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> well, I love some of your background and the fact that you were such a great – I don't think some of these people who may not do triathletes understand how impressive that is, um, reaching the pro level and qualifying – for Kona and then going 10 times. Um, I can't remember if you said that already, but we talked about it before we started recording. Um, you know, when you when you say win your age group, there are, you know, it's not like OCR where there's a race every weekend, um, pretty much in multiple states. Like there's, there's not that many Kona qualifying races. It has to be Ironman branded. And I think, I think now in 2019, there's like 30 worldwide. Do you remember how many there was? When you were oh, back then, so this is uh, my first Ironman was 91, and you were lucky if you could find one in the same state, and I'm from California, so I had to uh, travel 
for, for races. Uh, I, actually, I was lucky. I lived in Northern California at the time, and there was a race called the Vine Man, but it was a full distance Ironman. So you had to do that, place top three in your age group or top three overall. And I was lucky to do that race, and I did qualify there. I used to qualify also at the Wildflower, which is in uh, by San Luis Obispo. And then my favorite triathlon of all time was in Lake Tahoe. It's called, ironically, it's called the World's Toughest Triathlon. And it was a two-mile swim in Lake Tahoe, a 100-mile bike ride, and an 18-mile run. Most scenic, beautiful course with elevation and trees. And it was an Ironman qualifier, and I was very fortunate to qualify there. I, I really missed that race. Hey, it's funny you mentioned the Vine Man. That was my first Iron Distance triathlon I did in 2003, and it just obliterated me. Like, I, I'm a... <laughs> I'm I'm a pretty bad swimmer. Like I, I finished finished like you know ninety percent of the field beats me, and then I move up a couple of places on the bike, and then I move up a lot of places on the run because I'm disproportionately good at running compared to the other two. That's and, so funny. It would have been an exciting race because I'm like top two out of the water. I could hold my own on the bike, and then I just watch as the runners catch me. So <laughs> what what was your just curiosity? What was your time at the the Vine Man? Do you remember? Oh yeah, it is not. It's fourteen thirty. It's not impressive at all. Okay, I was like nine twenty-five. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny though. Yeah, yeah. Huh. I am not swimming. Is not my forte. Uh, I just I like well, having one speed. I've seen your forte, Evan. I I, <laughs> uh, I was really really stoked to do that second lap at College Station. You know, you just you wiped out the whole field, and at College Station was the toughest or tougher mutter last month and you won that. I think I was like 14th and then I got back in line. I want to do it in the loop and you were there and we kind of like looked at the crowd and Sean kind of looked at us and we just, we just went and just chatted the whole way. And I think I may have gone faster on that loop just chatting and uh, you're a freaking monkey and a gazelle combination because you can run fast and you can get all those obstacles and I'm just like struggling. So we uh, made it back for your awards, and that was that was a pretty cool, cool, pretty cool day. Yeah, it was good, good times running with you, and that's actually where we got the idea for this podcast. Because I was talking, and I was like, "Wow, you've like I knew you were a seal, um, but some of the triathlete and cycling stuff I did not know about." And on top of that, one of the things I think is interesting about you is, you know, like I I was blessed to be born at the right age and at the right point in my life where I could enter obstacle course racing and do well and make some money and you know write some books and stuff like that but you know you're you're older so you were not like i think if if you were born when i was born i think you'd be crushing the field well i, I tell you i and i um i did a special with uh cbs sports the tough mutter a couple of years ago they came down and videotaped me and i i talked and i I look back at that tape and I, th I think, God, I should have mentioned a lot more things. When I was in the Navy, I was actually on the Navy pentathlon team, uh, also known as the SISM team. I made the team and it was comprised of five events. And one of them was actually a miniature obstacle course here in Coronado, not the big obstacle course we do. So we had an obstacle course and then we had a, a swim race with fins and a swim race with clothes on and then a rowing race and then a cross country race where you had to run and then shoot and then row. And I made the team. We had 15 Navy SEALs try out for it and I was one of five and I got to go compete in Argentina. So I was kind of doing obstacle course racing. Now this is back in 1989. So that's like way back and I'm not sure how old you were then, but 
I had a glimmer of it, a glimpse of it. And then I, like I said, I, I got turned on to triathlon. That was, that was my, my life. So it wasn't until four years ago, I was uh, training some guys trying to get into the SEAL program and the guy I work for, he's like, Hey, go do a try, go do one of these, a tough mutter. I'm like, I'd heard of tough mutter for a friend of mine, but I, I just thought, what's that jump through fire and get electrocuted. And I went up to Lake Tahoe, one of my favorite courses. And we hung together, these eight guys and me. And I, I loved it. I loved the concept of helping each other out. And you, you're in a mud ditch. And you got to reach down and pull the guy out. And he pulls you out. And it reminded me of being in the, in the teams and just being reliant on uh, a brother to get you in and out of things. And so um, I, I did another one and another one. And then I got hooked on the, on the headband thing, trying to upgrade from, you know, from orange to green to blue to yellow to pink and then and then okay now what's next my 10th and my 25th and now i'm going to be coming up my 75th which is kind of neat and then what i was doing which a lot of tough mutters did is they did multi-lapping like you do you know you do not just one lap of eight to ten miles you do a second one or a third one so when they created the toughest uh division which was eight hours in the last couple years I turned 50 years old and I said, you know what? I'm going to do all the toughest races. And I, I was one of four guys to do four people rather, because two of the people were, were female, uh, Sarah Knight and shark bait Dugan. And then, uh, Jim Campbell, who's, I think he's going to be on his 200th event this year. All four of us did the six toughest and I got to know them. I got to meet so many really cool uh, people in the community. And then last year I came back thinking, I'm going to do all the toughest again. I, I really like this. And then I kind of ran out of money. <laughs> that was the only thing. They're expensive. I, I had a little sports car two years ago, a little Porsche, and I, I sold it to pay for the races because it cost about 10 grand to do all these things. Do you regret selling the sports car or is it worth it? Uh, no. You know, every time I brought that thing into the shop, it was like, hey, 800 bucks, 800 bucks, 800 bucks. And it was like, and the guy was like, you pay to play. It was this catchphrase. You pay to play. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm sick of paying, <laughs> you know, I like speed. And I like driving fast, but I was paying a lot for insurance and it was kind of a beater boxer. And I said, you know, this is going to cost me a lot. And I needed, I, I needed an extra six grand, seven grand. And I sold it and I never regretted it. So it was fun. But yeah, I wonder how many guys like you who are just, you know, phenomenal athletes that are kind of past their prime are still competing that, you know, if, if this sport was invented 10 years earlier or 20 years earlier, you know, you would be like people like you would, it would be like, you know, Ryan Atkins, Mark James. And, you know, it would be like, yeah, uh, it's funny that that comment you, you offended and, and complimented me in the same. <laughs> token, so it's like funny, you know, I was r extremely uncoordinated as a kid and I still, feel uncoordinated i i can i can never dribble pass catch or throw a ball uh when i Sound ran like as a kid yeah well when i ran as a kid my, my legs splayed out and i i was afraid to run i was embarrassed because people would like laugh at me uh but i was always good in the water and i think it's because my my parents uh had me in, swimming when i was like two years old and i had little fins on my feet and and I could always swim. And I was always like, when it came to swimming, I was picked first. If I was on a baseball team, it would come down to, okay, 
uh, little Timmy who's blind and has one leg, we'll take Timmy over Mark James because he cannot dribble, pass, catch, or throw. He's freaking useless out there. So I could swim. And so people think, oh, you're this natural uh, uh, athlete. I, I'm terrible at pull-ups. I, I'm sure all your listeners, 95% of them could probably do more pull-ups than me. I, I feel like I had the longest arms in the world. And also, in all fairness, I – will walk past a pull-up bar. I have, I have these rings. I bought these rings on eBay, and I have them hanging from an old lumber rack in my courtyard. And I hung them up thinking, this is going to help me with Kong and these ring, ring things. And I, I just walked by them. And my excuse is, oh, it was raining, so they're wet. Well, guess what? That is the best time to get on, as you know, wet obstacles. you got to master a, a monkey bar or a ring or the gauntlet or some of these obstacles that are going to be wet and muddy. And If you can't do it when it's wet, you're going to have to pay the price and do extra running or burpees or whatever. So you put in the time, just like running, put in the time. I'm, I'm working on a blog right now from last weekend's race, and I'm saying, look, it's, it's about excuses, coming up with excuses. And um, it's on toughmuttersphere.com. Um, but y- everyone has excuses. Well, try and not come up with them by just doing the work and, and getting it done. You know, thanks for the shout out on um, I, I mitts. I know you, you push mitts. I heard about them. I'm like, I don't need those things. I froze like we all did in Atlanta last year. And I finally got a pair of mitts. Uh, I know you, you, you sell them on your website. And it's awesome because they saved my life. And in Europe, it got down to 37 degrees and my hands were cold. And I put those things on and I just like, oh my gosh, why did I not have these the last three years? So everybody order a pair of those. They're worth, worth their weight in gold. Yeah, they are absolutely awesome. I didn't have them until actually Atlanta, I think was my first time using them. So, and they were, I was, they were crucial in Atlanta, especially when it was, I mean, when things were freezing over, you know, it was absolutely great. You know, after you did the triathlon thing for a while, you also were a Cat 3 cyclist. So tell me a little bit about that transition. Yeah, so I went to uh, – so I, I, I got out to be a, an athlete, a triathlete, but I also wanted to get an education and I had a great thing called a GI Bill that would pay for my college. So I went back to the junior college that I had left five years prior, uh, got my associate degree, and then I transferred to one of the most liberal schools on the planet, UC Santa Cruz. Do you know what the mascot for Santa Cruz is? I have no clue. The banana slug. Okay, I was a fighting banana slug. Um, And what's funny is I was 26 years old, and I joined the swim team. I swam. It was a Cat 3 school. I was still eligible. Swim coach, Mickey Wender, bless his heart, it was his first year at Santa Cruz. He was the coach, one of the most liberal schools. And ironically, he is now, you'll appreciate this, he is now the swim coach at West Point. He's been the West Point swim coach the last 10 years. A very uh, successful program. And to go from Santa Cruz to West Point is awesome. Anyway, I swam for them. And this is during the period when I was swimming and I wanted to ride. And I was doing this Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday ride in Santa Cruz. Extremely competitive. And I got my... Cat 5 license, Cat 4 license, Cat 3 license. You have to get so many points to get into each category. And then in the Cat 3s, you would, I would do these races, either a road race or a time trial or a criterium. That's where you, you bike round and around in circles, which are so fun. Because imagine a quarter-mile loop, 
and you're going around a city block and you got a guy saying, okay, next, next winner gets a hundred bucks or next winner gets a bike helmet or next winner gets, so you get, then you get this sprint mode and it's cutthroat, man. Guys are cutting each other off and you know, wipeouts are happening, but that totally strengthened me for cycling. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I made, I made some money as a cat three. I made more money as a cat three than as a triathlete. That's for sure. But uh, it just made me a strong cyclist and appreciate the sport of cycling. I, I was like glued to the Tour de France. I, I worshipped Lance Armstrong for the for at least, uh, gosh, eight nine years. Uh, I almost cried when he was on Oprah. You know, I wore the yellow armband, and I'm like, yo, man. So, yeah, yeah. same. Me and, you, me and you match pretty well as far as <laughs> definitely, definitely on the same boat there. I, I mean, I loved watching him race Tour de France. I mean, it was just. Yeah, it was oh. poetry. It was, yeah. I mean, it was, really- it was, oh, steroids, steroids. Well, you, you don't descend like that on steroids. You don't have the grace on the bicycle. And it's just, it, uh, it, it's so saddening that he went to the dark side. And a lot of guys were, and he went a little beyond because yeah. of his ego and we could talk all day about Lance Armstrong, but it's uh, he, he did a lot for cycling and he's also had yes. raised quarter million dollars or more for Navy special warfare. He came out here, he did the super seal triathlon. I got to meet him, he did golf tournaments and it's, it's, it was, it was a sad day. It was, a, and uh, that's, that's the past. So. Yeah. And I mean, if you look not to stray too far off topic, if you look at the, you know, they haven't given those seven Tour de France victories to anyone. It's just listed as like, you know, champion missing on on the Tour de France website. Well, yeah, the top ten, top twenty guys were all doing performance tension drugs. So yeah, who were you to give it to? There, yeah, exactly. There was a uh, I forgot what magazine I was reading, but they had so they had the seven years he won, and they took the top ten of each year, and then they highlighted who had failed a drug test before, or after, or during, and then and who also was involved in like a scandal or something where they were named. And out of like the top 10 people each year, it was like eight or nine of every single year. And it was like, sure. He's like, well, I don't even fucking know what to do now. You know, like, what do you, well, what's funny about that is I joke with, I have an old training buddy and we used to do triathlons and I did Hawaii Ironman 10 years. And I think I only cracked the top 100 once I had done some other races, won some other races. I tried to start a race. Uh, I did help start a race in Maui called the Maui Ironman. And I won that twice, which sounds really impressive, but it just kind of fell under because the race director, he wanted to use the word Ironman Maui and that word was already taken. There's a lawsuit. And, um, it was, uh, I forgot where I'm going with this, but Oh yeah. So, so the, 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 the joke is, we say, yeah, someday they're going to say, you know, those hundred guys were all doing performance enhancing drugs. And they're going to say that we were actually the, the official number one and number two guys because they were doing drugs. And a lot of guys were, I mean, EPO was a big drug back in the, in the nineties. It was undetectable. Guys were blood doping. They were doing things that they shouldn't have been doing. And they were doing incredible mileage. And when I gave you my mileage numbers earlier, I was burnt out all the time. I was so tired. I was living also in Flagstaff for for grad school at 7,000 feet. And I was trying to do these 300 mile weeks and I was just, I was just so freaking tired. And I'm like, how are people doing it? And then I find 10 years later, I'm like, oh yeah, I was doing this. I was doing that. I was on this $4,000 a month cycle of this. And I'm like, oh God, you're, well, one, those people are dead to me because I race clean. 
People thought I was on drugs. People also thought I was a trust fund kid because I was racing. They didn't realize I was painting houses uh, 40 to 50 hours a week on top of going to grad school, on top of training to support my habit. I wanted to race in Hawaii and in New Zealand and in Europe, and I have to pay my own way for a lot of those things. So frustrating time for sure. And triathlon is one of the most expensive sports, period. I mean, you can you can drop 5K on a bike and it's like, oh, nice nice startup bike. And you're like, what the? F-? Yeah, well, I, I would say, and I, I, I uh, went and visited Charlie Boher, who is the Holy Grail champion. And I lived with him for three days. And he is a huge polo player. Not water polo, but horse polo. And that is a money sport. When you have to own six horses that all run about 50 grand a piece, that is the money sport. I tell you what, wow. When I did Ironman Louisville back in, it was like 2013, they had a thing in like the brochure of, you know, what people's professions were. And it was like 20% doctor, 30% lawyer. You know, it was all these like, like, 75% 75% of the field was like had high, you know, high uh, six digit salaries. You know, it wasn't like it wasn't like barely over 100,000. It was like, you know, 200. Kind of like OCR, right? All these rich guys. I, I, I need to find more of them. And uh, it'll be interesting to see the demographics because the people I met are, you know, so many of them, God bless them. They're, they're MVPs. You know, they're volunteering a whole day so that they can race the next day at a tough mudder and I, I'm, I'm at five-time MVP and I'm like wow um, I, and I just couldn't afford to do it I, to be out there I mean I love seeing people and putting headbands on people and helping out but to do a race and then be there for eight hours it takes uh, a lot you know so I don't think we have the so many millionaires that are doing uh, the sport my, my buddy on the east coast Whitney uh, he, he might be up there but uh, he's, he's few and far between you eventually got a job over at the SEAL at BUDS, uh, basically underwater demolition slash SEAL training, right? Yeah, I was very fortunate. I got out of the SEALs and uh, I did probably about 20 different professions while I was going to school and then after school. I mean, I've been everything from a lifeguard, park ranger, substitute teacher. I worked at a juvenile hall. I was a special ed teacher, high school coach for swimming, for running. Then I was a collegiate cross-country coach at Sonoma State University for six years. And I did customer service. I mean, just uh, there's a long list of things I did. Well, 10 years ago, things got pretty bad. I almost lost my house. The market fell. Uh, My house got devalued about $150,000. And a friend of mine said, hey, um, how about being a Navy SEAL instructor? And I said, well, I'm not, you know, I, I don't think I can get back inactive. He's like, no, they're looking for Guys come in that have had uh, their SEAL background, that have education, that have been in the classroom, and could potentially teach. And I I said, man, I would love to do that, but there's no way in hell they're going to hire me. I I was only in for five years. And he says, well, come down here for an interview. So I flew down to San Diego, and they looked at my resume. And because I had so many years in education and, and also my triathlon and lifeguarding, and I had classroom presence, et cetera, they were they said, hey, when can you start? And I said, uh, uh, Monday. And this was a Friday. And they said, well, can you relocate to San Diego? Yes. And I'm like, yes, I can. Well, <laughs> uh, three years. For three years, I would get a, I, I lived, my, I have a, a three kids and my wife lived in Northern California. So north of San Francisco, about 75 miles. I would get up at three in the morning. I would drive to Oakland Airport, leave a car there, fly down to San Diego, 
and I'd, I'd work Monday through Friday down in San Diego and then I'd fly back and I did that for three years. I was also uh, still coaching at Sonoma State. So I was sometimes flying three or four times during a week. Southwest Airlines loved me, free peanuts, lots of points. But three years and you, know, you, you deployed and I, I never had to deploy while I was married or had a spouse, a spouse or kids. And it is very, very difficult being away from your, from your wife and your kids. And I was holding two jobs and I was really doing a, uh, a juggling act and I almost lost the marriage. Well, th- what happened was I, I almost lost the marriage because I thought I'd do my wife a favor. I got a eight month old Siberian Husky puppy and brought her home. And my wife had never had a dog before in her life. And I said, Hey, yeah, I got you a dog. And she's like, what are you doing? Oh my God. And I had to leave for two weeks. So almost lost the marriage over that one. But uh, now the dog is her best friend. I tell you, um, so yes, I'm a, I'm a Navy SEAL instructor. I put 55 classes through. I work in second phase of buds. I teach diving and I still do a lot of the physical evolutions with the kids. I call them kids. Uh, that's, uh, I, I put in over 600 miles of swimming with the kids. We, we utilize a, a stroke called side stroke, combat side stroke. We wear fins, we're on our side, very low profile stroke. We do a two mile swim every week and I join them. For that and they also do a five and a half mile swim i join them for that we have this awesome obstacle course and evan you got to come down here you you played on the army stuff but come play on some navy obstacle course and i do the obstacle course with them it's uh, in that video that cbs uh showed on tape you can kind of google me mark james world's toughest mutter uh that's my playground three miles from my house and then I do some of the runs with them and I lead the conditioning runs. So I'm, I'm like the 52-year-old man, uh, Navy SEAL instructor. I, I don't wear a dress uniform anymore, but I wear cami pants and a blue shirt that says UDT SEAL instructor on it. I'm in the classroom. Uh, I love my job. I love the students that come through the program. You know, they're Eagle Scouts and valedictorians and A-type personalities that just want to get after it and they want to be SEALs and they want to serve their country. And probably the most heart-wrenching thing is is the attrition rate is still 70%. So I have to sit on boards and determine the fate of some of these kids that just aren't cutting the mustard, that just aren't making the grade or, or doing the performance standards because we have very, very high standards. And if you don't make them, you are gone. And they get to come back after two years, but they don't just get to go home if they quit or they get dropped. They have to still serve in the Navy. So, uh, yeah, I put over 2,000 guys through, through training, and uh, hopefully I'll, I'll be there another 10, 15, 20 years. I am older now, but I feel like I can just keep on going. Yeah, we'll definitely put a link up to that video. We'll have you send it to me, and then we'll share it to the Strength and Speed page uh, when this podcast goes up. Funny that you mentioned, um, you know, you're a Navy SEAL. Let's talk, and I do want to go dive into that a little bit more, but I think you know where I'm going with this. Yes. A famous picture of you, is there not? Oh, my gosh. Um, so there's a picture, and you can put it on your, on your post. Um, it's become uh, iconic. Um, it's a picture of me. I have a boonie hat on and a radio on my back, and I have, I'm turning my head to the side, and I got a, uh, I think it's an AR-15 or a CAR-15 with a 203 grenade launcher on it. 
and I have cycling gloves on. I came up with the idea because I just like these black cycling gloves and I've got the old camis on my face is camied out and I'm looking out for the side. And the story behind that is uh, all hands magazine. We're doing a special on the Navy seals back in 1987 and they sent some photographers out in the woods. We were in the woods of uh, Westford, Virginia, and they took a whole bunch of pictures with this telephoto zooms. And I didn't think much of it. And three months later, I get these dirty looks from these old, I, I was at FNG, you know, all know what FNG is. Okay. The first word rhymes with trucking and the next word is new guy. And I was a, a trucking new guy at SEAL team two. And these guys are like looking at me really dirty. Like, yeah, you're the guy. I'm like, what the heck's going on here? And one of my buddies said, Hey, you're on the cover of all hands magazine. So my face is on the cover of the 1987 all hands magazine. And if you flip through the pages, there's different pictures in there. And that is one of them. Also, I'm looking off to the side. So I got, Oh my God, I got tied up and thrown in the Chesapeake Bay and they got through rocks in my head and I got my head shaved and one eyebrow shaved off. Oh my God. They love that. And then Two months later, I'm in a bookstore, and there's a picture of Vietnam Magazine, and there's that picture on Vietnam Magazine. Flash forward 30 years with social media, every time it seems they do a Navy SEAL story, whether it's SEALs going to Katrina, SEALs in Somalia, SEALs overseas, first female Navy SEAL drops out, there that picture reappears. It's like this stock picture, like, hey, there's a story on Navy SEALs. Let's pick out the picture of Mark James and put it on the cover. So, yes. In fact, I've had students come through, foreign students. They're like, oh, yes, we have that picture in our country. One guy said he had that as a tattoo. He knew someone with a tattoo of that on his back. And then and then running into you, you're like, yeah, I have this poster in my, in my, in my, in my room or something. Yeah, so the best part about that is – when I was growing up and I was a Cub Scout and Boy Scout, I had a t-shirt with you on it. <laughs> so I, I'm, next time I go back to New York to visit my family, I'm going to dig through my photo album. And I got to find the, I don't, I don't have the t-shirt anymore. I know that. Um, but I got to find the picture because I know like I was walking around with a Mark James t-shirt. That is funny. For like, you know, 10 yeah. years back in the day. People remind me all the time. In fact, there's a, a senator, uh, a Republican Senator Matisse, and he was doing some kind of award presentation and someone happened to see it online or something. And in the background is a sketch of that picture. And I was like, Hey, I, I wrote on his Facebook. Hey, you got a picture of Mark uh, Navy seal on your wall. He's like, Oh, I thought it was an army guy. And I'm like, well, nope, it's me. Here's the original. So it's funny. In fact, somebody I'll write, I'll write a book and that'll be on my, on my cover. And I'm sure the, the photographer will come out of the woodwork and say, Hey, you owe me money for that. I'm like, you know what? I have yet to receive a single cent because it's, you know, Navy owned property from that same picture. And I just, it, I just laugh because people send me that thing all it's on the cover of uh, different DVDs. I think it's something on the back of the killing fields movie and untold story of the Navy seals. And yeah, that, that picture. And, and, and if you look really closely, especially as a military guy, you'll see, and this is like the, this is what uh, neuters that picture. There is no magazine in the weapon. <laughs> it's just, it's empty. That thing ain't shoot. It's a blank shooting weapon right there. So uh, unless you know your, your equipment, uh, you, you, you'll spot that. So similar story, not nearly as good. The sister, so I was in a, I was in Bravo Battery, 3rd to 320th at one point. And uh, I'm sorry, I was in Alpha Battery. There was a picture taken of Bravo Battery, so my sister company, uh, my sister unit there. 
of a bunch of arm there's a bunch of field artillery dudes essentially standing on top of a hill they're all holding their guns up in the air and it's it's in silhouette so like there's essentially black outlines of like maybe five to six guys each with like a gun in a different pose and that picture is like is also like one of those stock images that you see literally everywhere you know, you, you go to like Ranger Joe's, the military surplus store down in Fort Benning, and they have like a giant painting of it on the wall. You'll see it on like, you know, USAA credit card advertisements. You'll see it on posters, like everywhere. And one, those guys don't receive anything from it. There's no, they get no royalties. Two, they always use it to display like, typically it's talked about as their infantry dudes, but they're not, they're artillery dudes, um, which we always thought was funny. And, uh, but yeah. Not nearly as good, but it's and definitely not a close up. But yeah. it's just funny you see you they there's certain stock images in the military that they just get used over and over again, and uh, yours happens to be well. Worked. And also in, in our sport, I, I think the, the the sport of OCR. Um, one of the neat moments in my OCR uh, um, um, history is actually I share with you. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm thinking Chicago. Um, maybe we're thinking something else there, but it was the last toughest in Chicago and they had the OCR or tough mutter put out this like billboard picture. And it was like, here's the three guys that are going to be at toughest Chicago. And it was like Ryan Atkins. who's like the King. And then you were freaking awesome. And then I was on there too. I'm like, Oh my God, dude, you, <laughs> you should have had like Chris Mendoza on there. Chris Mendoza got so overlooked for so many yeah. uh, years. You know, it was such a blessing when he finally won, he started winning races and he got all that, all that exposure. I'm like, yeah, about time. Cause Dozer's just, he's just, he's such a genuinely nice guy. And so is because Trevor psychos. I mean, it was, it was heart wrenching seeing him, him lose last year on that video. But I was like, Oh, I don't belong with these guys. These guys are really, really good. And I think you actually ran by me. And he said, hey, Mark. And I'm like, Hey, Evan, you know, and then he lapped me five times. And, uh, that was a funny race because that was the first time I met Mark Jones too, I, who I really look up to. And he's a former, uh, you know, he's a veteran as well. Yep. And um, he just finished selection uh, and did really well in that go rock thing. And I, I, I was on one of the obstacles and I'm like, Hey, you're Mark Jones. He looked at me and I'm like, I'm Mark James. And I kind of give him a high five. He's like, huh? And then later on, he's like, man, that was the coolest moment of the whole race. He gave me a high five. I'm like, dude, you're, you're cool. Your name is Mark Jones and I'm Mark James. And so, um, it took me several months to figure out which one of you was which. <laughs> well, let's be honest there. They, um, that, that's the thing. When Tough Mudder said they wanted to do a special on me, I was like, hey, are you sure you're not trying to get a hold of Mark Jones? Because I've just done a few of these, and I'm not, that, I'm not that good. I mean, these guys are really good. They're doing 75, 80, 90 miles. And I'm like barely hitting 60, 70. So, um, no, I, I've gotten to, to know him, and I, uh, I I miss him in the sport. He's, I don't think he's doing tough mutters this year, but uh, really nice guy, an awesome awesome girlfriend, and he's really still getting after it. You know, still serving too, which is nice. Yeah. So, what's the difference? So, you've seen a lot of students go through um, Navy SEAL training. So, can you point out some of the difference? Like, can you? Well, let's do. It, let's me back up. Can you? Can you tell who's going to make it and who's not going to make it when they show up? I would be uh, a multimillionaire. You know, the Navy spends a lot of money sending people to SEAL training. And it's actually a win-win for the Navy because here you have this uh, A-type personality that wants to serve, that's very fit, swim, run, uh, do push-ups and pull-ups and everything else. And they have to pass a screening process just to get into the SEAL program. And they have all this additional training in Great Lakes. So they go to two – the typical 
Navy guy who wants to do the SEAL program, he comes in as an enlisted man. That means he doesn't have a commission. He might have a college degree, but he hasn't been commissioned by the Navy. So he comes in two months of boot camp and then two months of BUDS preparation training. And then he goes to SEAL training, which is three weeks of initial training. And then BUDS itself is six months long. And there's advanced training, which is another six months. So a guy hasn't really become like an eligible SEAL, uh, kind of a new guy SEAL, for about a year and a half to two years, if he's lucky. Well, since I went through in 1985 till now, the attrition rate, even with all this scientific research, is still about 70 to 75%. They start with 230 guys, and they finish with like 35 to 40 guys, and it's just the same thing. And if they could pinpoint who was going to make it or not, they'd say, okay, you 30 are going to make it. We're not going to waste time on everyone else. But it's still a win-win because a guy can't just get out of the Navy as soon as he gets disenrolled from SEAL training. He owes the Navy about four to five years. So what happens is he goes to the fleet. He, he has a hard life for the first year. He's chipping paint or peeling potatoes. But if he wants to come back in the SEAL program, he has to spend all his time being that perfect model sailor. And so that's, that's a win for the Navy. He's in shape. He's not going to be a slouch. And so – uh, SEAL training is extremely, extremely difficult. It, it really is. And, and I, I, I'm on the other side of the fence as far as seeing the first hand of what it takes. And I remember training from 32 years ago, like it was yesterday. It was, it's long hours. You're cold, you're tired, you're chafed. It's like a freaking constant tough mutter for a year straight. And that's just training after training. You're still, you're even colder. I mean, I joke with guys or talk guys. I was tireder and colder and scareder what after buds after seal training and i really didn't do that much i mean i never went to afghanistan or iraq i did some other stuff but just not on that level and i think people nowadays they're a little disillusioned there's a lot of movies out there's a lot of media out there's books out and i think they sit just like ocr guys they maybe sit in the comfort of their home it's nice and warm and they see a, a special on world's toughest mutter and they've had a couple beers on them, like, you know, that looks easy. I can do this. And they don't put in the time. And then they come to the race or they, they join the Navy. Here's the parallel. They, they join something, and now they're cold, and now they're tired, and now they're uncomfortable. I see this time and time again, even at this toughest last weekend. You get 600 people sign up, and 100 of them go five miles. And it's like, what happened there? You know, they just weren't prepared, and that's what happens to some of the SEAL candidates. They're not prepared physically, although I tell people it's 75% is mental. You have to be mentally prepared. You have to be used to doing things that make you uncomfortable and be willing to just go the extra distance, and, and some people just can't handle it. So, Yeah, absolutely nailed that answer. I kind of knew where, where you were going to go with it uh, before I asked it, but I still wanted to ask it so people hear it from someone else that – what do you think separates – you kind of touched on it already, but like what separates the guys that are making it versus the guys that are not? Well, I think in my own experience, I had, uh, I had a, a tough life. I, I moved around a lot. I went to three different high schools. Uh, I lived with my aunt and uncle for a while. My uncle was, was pretty stern and, and a disciplinarian, which I needed because I could have very easily gone off to the dark side and just done drugs and just gotten in a lot of trouble with the law. And he made sure I was on a swim team. And he, you know, if I wanted to be on the swim team, I had to walk. You know, I was that guy who walked 
uh, uphill in the snow at four in the morning to get to the pool. And then he'd actually take me up after swim practice and take me to the school where he was one of the teachers and he'd check up on me doing my homework. So he really, he, he guided me in the, in the right direction. Um, I think people just aren't mentally prepared or maybe they don't have that adversity in their life. Um, it seems like we have more problems with people that come in that have had the perfect life. Everything is just, they've never failed anything in their whole life. And then some of our tests are kind of slanted towards just towards failure. And Mm -hmm. we see what happens when someone fails something for the first time. It's just like mind blowing, like especially in this new generation, I don't want to, you know, blame millennials for all, you know, everything is a participation ribbon and everything. You're, you're wonderful without the, the, the criticism that I think we occasionally need that, you know, that brutal honesty of someone saying, Hey, you suck. In fact, one of the things that made me stronger as, as an athlete and a human was I told my mom or someone, hey, I'm going to go do this. And, oh, that's dumb. Oh, that's stupid. Or you can't do that. You know, being told over and over again, you can't do that. And that actually had a reverse psychology of like, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to show you. I, can't, I, I, can, I can do this stuff. And maybe people are a little too coddled today where they um, – they're told they're, they're great, they're perfect, everything's wonderful, and then they come through a program like this and have these hardcore SEAL instructors that are just amped up on monsters and bull, Red Bull and <laughs> PTSD and ADHD, and, and, and they play a role. I mean, we definitely play a role at, at Bud's of good guy, bad guy, and we, we you know, throw it at them, and we want people to disenroll in – in SEAL training rather than get out in the field and have to be relied upon and then say, I don't, I don't want to be here. No, you have to be there. You're the medic. You're the 60 gunner. You're the whatever. So it's very, very difficult. And there's a reason for the attrition. You know, we, we want the best. Just like in, in your program, you know, there's attrition in, in the Ranger program. I'm sure you don't want that guy who's going to just, you know, run away when, when, uh, when, when the shots start getting fired. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I touched on you touched on a lot of great stuff there, and you're gonna make me because you touched on so many of it. I'm probably gonna repost the articles I wrote for Softleet, uh, Special Operations Forces Athlete. It's a website uh, specifically about like excuses and you know not quitting and stuff like that. And uh, you definitely touched on a bunch of them, so I'm definitely gonna definitely gonna repost those because you. I mean, you hit the nail on the head when you're in combat or in training and things are terrible. Like, there's no all right. I'm just gonna. I'm just going to, I'm going to call this one. I'm going to give this one a DNF and we'll come back and do it later. Like that's not an option, right? Like there are 11 to however many other guys in your unit relying on you and you don't have the option to, I'll, I'll tap out now and we'll come back and assess this later. It's like, regardless of the odds, you have to move forward with the mission, um, regardless of how you feel and the, you know, the situation. So there was, um, uh, three years ago, we had some Olympic athletes come to seal training for, it was like a day of seal training. Uh, one of them was Galen Rupp, the great, the great runner. Oh yeah. And, um, we got to put them, uh, on the obstacle course. We had them on boats, him and, uh, Jordan Hesse, Mary Kane, oh, wow. uh, Mike Sensowitz. I think he was a gold yeah, medalist. And it, big runners, if yeah, you're track. big runners from uh, so I was Alberto, uh, Alberto Salazar, who I like worshipped as a kid because he'd done one of these races. He was the coach, so he brought Team Nike down, and I got to work with them. Like, oh my god, I love these people. They're like little aliens because they all had little bodies, and they were just <laughs> quirky, and they, they were just fast, and and but they were completely out of their element, you know. So we had the, we had our hardest 
Navy SEAL instructors just like light them up. They're under boats and they're just like just yelling at them and cussing at them and just seeing Jordan and say just kind of like quiver, you know, like, oh my God, what's going to happen? Anyway, when, all, when, when that was over, we had kind of a, a, a sit around and, and they shared some of their stories. And, and it was Galen Rupp who said, you know, the one thing that, you know, special forces like Navy SEALs, Green Berets, et cetera, and Olympic athletes have in common is, you know, on the day they have to perform, you know, when the day that that special forces operator has to go in the field and it, hey, it's game on, and the day that that Olympic athlete has to freaking race, he can't have a he or she can't have a bad day. You know, they can't say, hey, you know what, I let's do this tomorrow because you're not going to be able to go tomorrow. You're not going to have that race tomorrow. And I can think of so many of my obstacle course races, including last weekend, where I'm like, I do not feel good. Everything hurts. I just sprain my ankle or my freaking calf, and I feel like I'm going to throw up. And it's like, hey, it's game on. You, 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 you know, heck with that. Get in the fight. Get it done. And just get over with it. So it's neat coming from, from a, a really class uh, act like uh, Galen to say that. That is awesome. Yeah. Very, very good info there. So uh, let's transition and we'll talk a little bit about Toughest UK before I let you go. So I did Toughest East, the one in Philadelphia. For me, I'd say it felt pretty much the same. I thought it felt like all the other Toughest. Um, I would say the pit area, the fact that we actually had tents made it have a little bit of that world's Toughest vibe, which was kind of nice. And they did a real good job of they actually routed the course through the pit. So before you cross the finish mat for each lap, you actually ran through the pit which I'm a huge fan of, again, because there's not five good pit spaces. There's, you know, 50 good pit spaces because you, you run by so many of the tents. And then the other thing they kind of did that was interesting was at the 20-mile mark, they gave you a, uh, an orange wristband. Oh, I heard about that. And cool every idea. yeah, every five miles after that, you got another orange wristband. <laughs> and you could, you could save them or you could use them. And basically, it allowed you to skip one obstacle, your choice, didn't match, matter which one. Um, so... So, yeah, that was kind of the big differences. And then, obviously, the other big difference is there's no prize money, um, which I was kind of hoping that that would draw more people away. But I felt like it was almost – I mean, there was, there was definitely, like, one or two people missing, but it felt just as competitive. Like, I finished – Oh, yes. I finished I seventh. Yeah. yeah, I finished seventh at uh, Philly in two years ago. And at the eight-hour mark, I was in fifth. Oh, I, so, I finished seventh in Philly two years ago by two minutes. Jesse Bruce beat me by two minutes. He was in fifth. And – Alexander Jenks was in sixth. Um, Two-minute gap there. At, at the eight-hour mark, I was in fifth place here. And then I didn't climb into third until, you know, uh, I don't know, like 10 hours or something like that. Eight or nine. Yeah, so. great performance. So how was how was UK? Did you have yeah, a lot of – so I, I've been going back and forth. Uh, Whitney Tilson is kind of like my nemesis. He – uh, he won the 50 and over uh, category three years ago, and then I won it last year, and then he won it the year. Actually, uh, he won it three years ago. I won it. Then he won it to so go back and forth. So we kind of joke because he did Philly, and he got fourth and 50 and over, and he went 40 miles. And I went to ETM, Europe's toughest mutter, and I got 35. And it was hard. I mean, I was I, I, I went into it going, okay, can't be as bad as, as Worlds because Worlds, as you know, got so freaking cold. So I didn't bring a full wetsuit. I brought a shorty. I brought my bleg mitts. I brought a hood. I brought some compression stuff. And since I'm going for that holy grail, I need to get miles. So I did the tough 
spur in the morning. That was like uh, eight and a half miles longer than our college station. And I pulled my freaking calf. I get to the first mile and I pull my calf muscle. I'm like, oh my God, this is really bad. And I'm running with Holy Grail champ uh, from last year, Charlie Bower. And he's being really cool. He's hanging with me. I'm like, hey, we could walk this thing because it's, it's, you get the miles no matter what. And then he took a bad fall on Funky Monkey. I think he broke a couple ribs because he got hit, really knocked the wind out of him. And here we are, the two, the two toughest uh, you know, sages, and we're both limping through tougher, going, how are we going to freaking come back eight hours from now and go do toughest? And somehow he got some, some medicine and we just kind of, just kind of regrouped, came back. Um, I don't know if you met James Brown. He's the Brit 57 year old. Awesome. Uh, he, I can't understand what he's saying cause it's such a thick accent, but he's a physical trainer. And I said, man, I sprained my ankle, my uh, calf. And he said, Hey, come over here. Come over here. He worked on my calf for like 20 minutes before his own our race. And he just freaking figured out my calf and he put some tape on it and it was, it was like gone. It was like magic. Um, so it started the 50, 50 degrees, you know, everything's in Celsius over there. So I did this calculation all the time. I knew it was cold and each lap got colder, colder, probably dropped down to 37. It, no orange headbands or uh, no orange, no, no golden, uh, carabiners. Like, you know, that, that would have been really nice. No help on Everest. Uh, stuff was very, very muddy. They had 3000 mudders out there through the day. Um, they had several Creek crossings where you had to like go neat neck deep in water a quick quick shout out for everest we had uh francis lackner uh well-known in the toughest mother community and uh nick shook that were up there literally for like 10 hours pulling people up and i mean for, i saw i was i saw them afterwards and francis's and uh nick's hands were like puffy they're swollen from grabbing people i was like i seriously think you guys have a harder job than i do like all i have to do is run and climb over things and do each obstacle once per lap like I can't even imagine pulling people up for that long because, you know, I know a lot of people get up there and they, they're just, they're dead fish, right? Like they grab your hand and they're just hanging. They're not, they're not pulling back. They're just, they're just saying. Well, you earned your, your hundred assists at college station. You know, we were kind of talking about that. How can we get our hundred assists out of the way? And I'm like, God, that is like the, the worst thing to be on Everest. I and mean, I love pulling like seven or eight, not eight or nine guys up, but you get some heavier dudes or even, you know, five, six, seven, 10 hours. That's, that's hard. So God bless them. And I know even me, when I, I mean, we get towards the second half of the race, like, I mean, I'm still pulling, but I'm not pulling like I was in the first half of the race, you know, like they're, they're doing a lot more work, even for someone like me, who's fairly small compared to some of the other people. That's awesome. So, um, the, the night went on. I, I, I tried to keep out of the pit as long as I, as I could. I did not pitch a tent. You know, like you said, the same thing in the ETM. Um, you were allowed to pitch a tent. They want you to give that, that world's feel. In the past, at Toughest, they just had a big communal tent and a table, and you'd all put your stuff in there. So fortunately, it did not rain. Um, the funny story is Charlie and I, we had a, we had some guy who had a big tent. He said, oh, we got a tent. We got a tent. So this guy gives us big package, which we think is a tent. And we have to carry this thing a mile from the parking lot to where we were setting up the, the pit area. And we open this thing and it's not a tent. It's a, it's a bed. He gave us the wrong package. So it's a bed. And I got a mallet in my hand. I'm like, why do we have this? This is so stupid. <laughs> so I just put a couple of hefty bags down on the ground uh, right next to actually Jessica Haney, who I got, got to meet. She ended up bringing the green jersey and going 45 miles for the yellow win. 
for the for the for the jersey, you know, championship jersey like your, your jersey from uh, from from Tougher. Uh, she went 45, and it didn't rain, but it it, it was it was cold and it was uncomfortable, and uh, I I persevered, but um, I. I I wish I had gone further, you know? And so I, I joke with Whitney, I'm like, Oh, you had the easy race. We had the hard race, but you know, it's, it's apples and oranges. You, you really can't compare because the champion, uh, in ETM, he went 60 miles. And I think the champion at your race went 60 miles also, or maybe Javier went 65 as, as a duo, but, um, a beautiful course, the, the most spectacular scenic, uh, the estate of the Beaver Castle, you know, thousands of acres of, of winding paths and meadows and trees and, and the fog and the mist at night and the howling uh, hounds in the background and the sheep on the course. Everyone needs to come over there. I only wish, and it was supposed to be two separate weekends, Europe's mutter was supposed to be the weekend before. And Philly was supposed to be like it was. And I was going to do both of them. And then they both fell on the same weekend and I couldn't do it. So. Yeah. Same location. It was last year. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. It was uh, a Beaver Castle was up in Grantham. So two hour train ride from, from, from London. Yeah. Um, okay. Beautiful area. Yeah. We went, I went last year uh, with my wife and we stayed in Nottingham, like uh, just like Robin hood there. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. We went to Nottingham Castle and did some sightseeing down there and then went to the race. And I was like, I forgot to look up for most, you know, like I'm so focused on the race that you're saying how beautiful the scenery was. Like I barely looked up during the race. And then eventually I was like, I should look up because I'm in a different country and I'm not in some farm in America. And, uh, yeah. Well, so you, you were there last year. Yeah. Oh, I completely forgot that. All right. Yeah. You know it. Yeah. You, you, you know, the course. How were the obstacles? I thought because last year I thought the obstacles were subpar compared to the American variant. Uh, well, they were all the ones we had in, in College Station, pretty much. They did not have Cage Crawl, but okay. they had um, yeah, the Gauntlet and Funky Monkey. Yeah, Gauntlet to the end, and it was kind of it was kind of odd. They had like a opening and closing of different things, so something would be open, and then the next time it would be closed, and then reopen again. Like a Gauntlet closed, and then it reopened, and Gauntlet the uh, t- the just the tip, it was just a two by four all the way across. They didn't have like the break with uh, the you know the pegs but it got really super muddy slick and then one of the most dangerous obstacles was probably they call the hero walls so it's a, it's a tall wall maybe eight six foot tall and then an eight foot tall and then a ten foot tall but they got so muddy again we had like three thousand guys out there freaking clamoring all over the things getting everything all muddy so they shut that down and then funky monkey was a different style of funky monkey in which you step on these little pedestal it's like a round disc you step on that has a pole. So three of those, and then you go up like a caving ladder, and then it's to the, the, the rings, you know, the big ring, big ring, big ring, and then a bar. And they got really super slick, and that's where Charlie took a bad fall on that last bar. And they had hang time. They had the devil's beard, the worst devil's beard I've ever had in my whole life. In fact, the, the Piss and Cock show, they were talking about get rid of devil's beard. It was five times longer than anyone I've ever done, and it was uphill. And my wrists, my wrists are still sore from being on all fours. In fact, I was crawling through second place uh, finisher, uh, uh, Jessica Lucy, who got 45 miles also. We're just like laughing at how bad it was. You, go down and you, can't, you don't know which way you're going. You're, oh, am I going to the left or right? And, the, and the, each, each 
uh, section had a tight cord just like two inches off the ground that you had to like wiggle through. So for those who don't know Devil's Beard, it's just a net that's staked to the ground. It's like super simple, but it's so annoying, especially if it's staked tight and especially, you know, when you're late in the race and your like knees are all scraped up and it's just like pressing you into the ground, you're trying to squeeze through. Um, when you get a good amount of people in there, it's not too bad. But when you, especially if you're by yourself or there's not, there's a big gap, like and it's bad. It's really bad. So I, I, um, I, I did okay. I, I made some stupid mistakes. I used a pair of old uh, ASIC gel uh, Kayanos uh, instead of tr- training shoes. You know, shoes are so vital. You want something with the grip, and these things were slick. And I took seven good endos. I had no traction. Uh, the mud section after Mud Mile was 100 yards of just ankle-deep mud, and it was just pathetic how slow I was going through that. So just dumb moves that a, you know, a, a veteran OCR guy, I, I should know better, but I was trying to travel light. and uh, got, I did get cold, but somehow I, I stuck in the fight. I think 40 people maybe out of 560 made the 40-mile mark. Um, results just came out, so I'm just kind of checking those. I, I, I think I got second in my age group and won the age group. Everything for me now is, okay, how, are, how am I doing compared to the, the 50-year-olds? You know, And there are some freaking good 50-year-olds. In fact, at your race, you had, uh, Joe Perry out there and Whitney and, and uh, my race, James Brown. and So those are the guys I look at. Whenever I see a guy with gray hair, I'm like, hey, how old are you? And, <laughs> you know, he says 50, oh, I'm going to stick with you. But sometimes they're like, 36, and why do you ask? I'm like, oh, I saw the gray hair. I'm like, oh, you know, you know thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so glad you mentioned the age group stuff. So one of the things that was different at um, Toughest Mudder East, Philly, was they recognized the age groups at the end at the award ceremony, which I thought was really cool. They only recognized the winner of each age group. Um, they didn't recognize three deep, but they did announce who they were and they called them up and they essentially stood in front of the podium before they did the overall awards, uh, which was really nice. So they did not do that. I'm kind of disappointed. In fact, I, I talked to uh, Kyle came over, the new race director, Kyle and Giles. Uh, they had a kind of an ambassador meet and greet Friday night and they had a barbecue and, and beers and, and drinks and things and got to talk shop with them. And, you know, they're, they're doing so much for, for the sport. They're really turning it around from last year. And I had heard something they might start acknowledging age groups. In fact, I was thinking about that. I was, I was racing like, Oh, it'd be kind of nice to, to get some acknowledgement, you know, not that I need to have my, my horn tooted, but you know, they, they always bring top three guys and top three gals and they're usually in their thirties and, you know, yeah. what about the guy who's like 40 or 50 or whatever? And sometimes it's hard for people to stick around for those awards. You know, a lot of times I, I felt sorry for the tougher winners last year because a lot of times the people would just be gone. They'd, they'd go. They wouldn't stick around for that stuff. But having age group acknowledgement is kind of it's kind of a nice little little extra gesture. And, and I, I know at Worlds last year they gave awards to um to the to the top finishers and maybe this year they'll actually you know bring them up on stage i mean what does it hurt to, to acknowledge uh yeah. top two or three so i don't know if you saw one of my comments it was on a sub thread in world's toughest mother community so my idea for age group awards is to get the headbands but reprint them in like you know gold silver and bronze thread so like shiny thread and that's got to cost them probably like a quarter per headband, right? Like, I don't know how much those headbands cost, but the quantity they order them in, it's got to be preposterously cheap. Um, so I think they should give 
gold, silver, bronze-colored headbands to age group winners. Yeah, that's a great idea. I mean, they're probably cheaper than those little kettlebell things they gave oh, out yeah. for repeat offenders. And oh, yeah. simple gestures like that are great. In fact, it was so wonderful to see uh, Charlie get. They had made him a customized bib that said holy grail champion champion it probably cost 20 cents in china to make oh no actually it's probably now a dollar in china um but and they're making uh ambassador bibs ambassador bibs are going to come out and those bibs are just kind of there's neat gestures that we just eat up and yep. uh, so things are things definitely coming about as you saw at the races you did you're at la you're at college station you could see everything from mutter village to the quality of the obstacles to the feel of the uh, of the races, I think that there's really turning things around, which is which is wonderful because I I just love I love the Tough Mudder brand. I, I joke with people, I'm not doing a Spartan, you know, I'm not doing anything else, and why not? I'm like, well, I don't know, I just am not doing other things. <laughs> so, well, since you're going for the big Holy Grail prize this year, uh, that I mean, that fills up your schedule pretty good, so. Well, it, it does, but it, it's not going to be easy because, like you said, I mean, you're 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 in the lead right now. I think by by ten points, and you know, if you just just did the rest of the toughest and world's toughest, you'd be over three hundred miles. And there's probably others like you that I I'm old, you know. I just don't think I can go over. I mean, if I can go forty five again, I'm going to try and do tougher in the morning. That's ten. And if I could do 45, then that's a 55-mile weekend. But uh, it's, it's, it's going to get harder and harder and harder. And I'm, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to have fun with it. And we'll just see what happens. It, it'll come down to worlds. You know, I have to, I have to go 75 or, or beyond. I had a 30-mile lead two years ago. And Ryan Atkins went 110 miles at Worlds, and I went 70 with 15 miles of penalties. And he had zero. You're talking about 100% completion. So I did 35 miles last weekend, and I had seven miles in freaking penalties because I, I failed Everest, and I failed Funky, and I failed Gauntlet. And that's extra mileage, you know? So I need to get with it. Uh, again, I'm writing an article right now on no excuses. And I'm like, hey, my excuses are well no one wants to hear them but i'm just not doing the upper body so i have six months to freaking get my ass in gear and get after it you know so right on well i don't think i'll be at the next toughest the twin cities one and then i think i have conflicts with the last two so we will i will most likely not be at those but yeah no, just just go 100 miles then and uh, uh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but i will definitely be at worlds because that's that's my a race for the year yeah well it, it's really it's really cool evan that you're you're sticking with the, the tough matter brand you know when they said hey no money prizes a lot of people said especially a, a lot of pros did not get paid to the last minute last year and they're like well the heck with this and it's sad to see you know ryan and Lindsay and Rhea and all these people stepping away and doing exclusive like spartans you know and, and it's great to see uh elites like yourself and Javier and uh, hopefully Trevor will come back and, and people that love the sport like, okay, we're not getting paid. Oh, well, we're still going to get after it, you know, and there's still some fine performances. Uh, Aaron Roast, you know, our Air Force uh, second place at, at Worlds last year. She went and, and did really well at, at your race, right, Philly? If you want. And um, it, it's still going to happen. You're going to still have fantastic performances. I mean, I would bet money you're still going to have someone hitting 100 miles at Worlds. You're still going to have people hitting 60 miles, and they could almost care less whether they're getting uh, a paycheck. So. Yeah. 
one more comment kind of crossing over back into cycling and toughest mudder and you're talking about the competitiveness so Aaron uh Aaron Ross was in first and Sarah Corba who's one of the Noob Sanity crew was actually in second up until so Sarah won the sprint lap and then I think basically held second the entire race and she basically crossed the line and uh you know felt like she physically couldn't go back out for another lap the girls who were in third and fourth at the time come through the finishing chute, you know, and they hand them that yellow leader's bib. And they're like, all right, you're in third and fourth. If, yeah, I don't think they were together. They were separated by some distance. But they're like, you know, if you can make it back out for one more lap, you would move up into second or third. Just like in cycling, they say the yellow jersey, the Mayo Jean, right, gives you wings and people perform above their uh, level. Well, the these two girls put on the yellow bib of the leaders and they took off. And both of them made it back, and they bumped Sarah down to fourth. Um, one of them, one of them made it back with like, I mean, there was two minutes left on the clock. You know, like the announcers calling it, and because they have to run through the pit first, and then they have to go over Mutterhorn and then through Electroshock before they get to the finish line. Like she was running through the pit, and they're like, you know, two minutes, and she still got to go over Mutterhorn, and you know, it, it was a pretty exciting race. And uh, I would love to see, you know, part of the thing I would like to see about age group awards is. If you started talking about them more, I think you'd get a lot more people would get a lot more competitive in the age groups, and you know people would be checking their placement more, and they'd be, you know, be you know, well, what like you were saying, what age group are you in, and checking placements and stuff like that. I think it would make the the event more interesting in general. Yeah, you probably remember triathlon; they write your age group on your calf. Yeah, and see who's what. And yeah, there's there hasn't been a lot of acknowledgement, and I know that feeling of of going down to the wire at, at Philly two years ago at a toughest. I finished with 40 seconds to spare. I did 30 miles and the whole last, that lap, I'm not going to make it, I'm not going to make it, I'm not going to make it. In fact, I, was, I ran out of energy and I was like picking up used goo wrappers off the ground. I was that desperate for like sugar and uh, somehow I just fell across the finish line with 40 seconds on the clock and so I was lucky and then I'd see people come in and as you know, some of your, your listeners might not realize that when you go out for that last final loop, if you do not make it before that that eight o'clock window, you do not get any credit for that whole five miles. So you might run that whole five miles and you don't get anything. Yeah. So it's a, re- a real gamble. And I, I was kicking myself. I, I, I stopped at six forty, So I could, I had a, a, a hour 20 on the clock to go finish one more loop. And I just kind of did this, this, what I call loser math in my mind of like, wow, I'm averaging one thirties. There's no way I'm going to go one twenty. And in hindsight, I should have just said, hey, heck with this, just go for it, you know, but I was, I was fried and it didn't happen. So uh, it's a mental note next time that that's not going to happen. I'm going to go for it because you can surprise yourself like those gals did. And a lot of people did. They went their fastest lap next to their sprint lap on the last lap. Yeah. My last, my last lap was fast. I don't, I can't remember what it is, but I had, I had even splits and then they actually turned negative towards the end, uh, Partly in thanks to those orange bands, and then partly because I was I was being consistent and I was running uh, the whole time. Uh, so. You race smart. That's that's fantastic. Yeah, I was I was just super happy. Like on my personal note, like obviously the placement I'm really happy about, but uh, just the way you know, 100% absolute completion, and then my splits turning negative, and uh, I just felt I felt really good like the entire race. So wow, um, that's fantastic. Real. I like the 12 hour format, obviously, if it's a place to my advantage. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I thought it was, it was uh, exponentially like three times harder than the eight hour. I kind of wish they'd gone like maybe to a 10 hour venue because uh, 
I hit seven miles or seven hours. I'm like, wow, I got five hours left. And, and that's largely due to my lack of preparation, my lack of training. You know, my longest run this year, and you're going to laugh at this, was that race in College Station doing a double with you. You know, yeah. 13 miles, if even that. And you got to put in, if you're, you know, the people listening, if you want to do a toughest 12-hour venue, get out and do, do at least a two to three-hour run and experiment with with the foods you want to take out in the course and experiment running at night and, and being wet and cold and, and, and wearing the equipment you think you're going to run because something might chafe like your shoes or your socks or your hat or your armpits. And what happens when you're tired? What happens at 2 a.m.? And I think people get shocked and they don't do as well as they, they could because they're just not, they're not prepared. They don't do the, the, the training and the preparation. So, I mean, it's one thing to go out and do a toughest and say you did it, you know, get 10 miles in. And it's another to earn one of those uh, badges. You know, you get a headband, sure, if you go 12 hours. But the badges this year, as you, as you know, they're, they start at 25 miles and now they're in five-mile increments. So the 30, 35, 40, et cetera. And they're kind of neat. They're kind of a neat, neat uh, addition to your swag. You know, I got, I got a sweatshirt that has all my little badges on the back now, and I look forward to adding some to that. But that's what you should be going for. Yeah, I really like the new patches because the old last year, they just gave a 25-mile patch, If right? I well, think. They, well, 25 unless you were lucky and went 50 at, at Toughest. There's just oh, two, okay. 25 oh, was... or, the, or the 50. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, I typically would run 40 to 45. So, like, I mean – I'm not going to put on a 25 mile patch if I yeah. ran twice the distance, almost twice that distance. <laughs> yeah. uh, not there's anything wrong with running that 25 miles. You should be proud of what you did. Exactly. No, I, I know exactly. What you mean. So like, I'm not going to be like, Oh, here's what I did. And it's like, you didn't you run 20 more miles? And it's like, well, yeah, but yeah, you get three of them or two of them. <laughs> yeah. It's like running worlds, you know, unless you hit 75, you know, a 50, a 50 bib is a 50 bib. Even if you right. run 55 through 70, you know, you so run 70 and make it halfway through the last lap before they, yes. you know, yeah. that's what happened to me, you know, two years ago, 70 and then 12 miles of freaking penalties. Thanks to that damn uh, funky monkey penalty um, at, at worlds in, in Nevada two years yeah. ago, it was just ridiculous. All right. Last note about uh toughest mother East. So uh, Eli Hutchison and Nolan Campbell, who have been intimately involved with the uh, Tough Mudder community. And um, what's their official job title? Do you know off the top of your head? What were they? They were kind of like directors and producers, and they were definitely the the, 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 the face of, yeah. of, of those races. You know, so much of the toughest. They, their design, they had a lot of input. And I got to say goodbye to Nolan in College Station, and they're, they're going to be missed. Yeah, sure. so they they, they – Toughest Mudder East was their last event, official event, they said. So they are leaving the company, um, which is kind of, you know, I don't know if it's their choice or the company's choice, but it's kind of sad to see just seeing a familiar face go. And uh, I'm sure things will still be great, but, you know, it's always it's always sad to see a friend uh, leave the industry. So Sure, sure. Everyone's been uh, – they're definitely one of, the, one of the fixtures, you know, just like Sean and Clinton and Iraq and Coach. You know, I expect to see them at a race. When I don't, I'm like, oh, this is not the same. So uh, I, I have faith in, in, in Kyle and, and Giles and the, and the rest of the crew that they want Tough Mudder to succeed. And this is, this is a make-or-break year, I think. So we'll, so far, so good. Awesome. Well, Mark, thanks for coming on. 
And uh, before we let you go, any final shout-outs you want to give to family, friends, sponsors, et cetera? Well, uh, first and foremost, I want to thank my wife, Tanya. Um, she, we have three teenage kids, and I was gone for the last week, and I get to escape on weekends. She's a poet and a writer, and she has her passions, and I have mine. And we're celebrating our 20th anniversary on the 13th of June, same day as my daughter graduates high school. She's going to come out and do uh, Tough Mudder Sacramento with me on the 8th of June. And um, I, I, I've been, I've been, I've been blessed. You know, I don't really have any, any sponsors yet. I'm, I'm, I've got this blog, toughmuttersphere.com that I'm just kind of toying around with. It's very frustrating for me to actually write and figure out things on the computer. It took me half an hour to figure out the zoom call with you. <laughs> um, so uh, no sponsors yet. I had a GoFundMe page last year, which really helped me out. A lot of, a lot of friends and family kind of uh, donated some money so that I could travel and, and race these, these things. I am a tough mutter ambassador. So that helps with entries, but you know, as you know, things add up, I mean, hotel and, and car and, and different things. And I, um, I, uh, I appreciate all the help I can get. So, yeah, for anyone who's kind of looking to get sponsored or stuff like that, a lot of it is one, it's a numbers game, right? Like you need to contact lots of people before you get an acceptance. So, um, and then the other thing is like, you should be already using that product. So it's actually saving you money, right? Like if I'm getting free stuff of a product that I don't normally use, it's not really saving me any money. It's just, I just have more stuff now. Between uh, my personal sponsors and the CTG Pro team, it makes it's a lot of small changes that when you put them together, it makes a I would say a dramatic impact on the overall cost of uh, my racing and training and traveling. So yeah, I think my successful years as a triathlete, I was fortunate to uh, meet some of the the the. Uh, the designers of the like for example i i rode this bike kestrel and i happened to meet the ceo i was at a race and he said what do you think of the bike and i said oh, i love this bike it's a great bike and i had no idea who he was and he's like well, i'm the president of kestrel and he gave me a bike and you know believe in the product that's that's what really sells you know it's one thing just to use a product because you're getting paid but to really enjoy and find a product and talk about it i mean i i love the shoes I wear, uh, Solomon's, I, they're not sponsoring me. And I, I love different products that I wear. I love the blood nets, blood nets. They don't sponsor me, but I think that's a win-win when you can really say something great about a product and then they, they, you know, maybe give you a pair and it's not like we make <laughs> lots of money. People like, Oh, even like Ryan, who, who's one of the top uh, OCR guys in the world. He's he's not making millions of dollars. He's struggling right. race to race to race. It's not a it's not like golf. You know, we're not getting paid lots of money. We're doing this mostly for the for the passion of the sport, and that's a, a wonderful thing. Absolutely. All right. Before we let you go, I'm going to give the listeners a quick uh, some advice to head over to TeamStrengthSpeed.com. Just released by the time this comes out. Two new books on there, so Mud Run Guide's Ultimate OCR Bucket List, which I've talked about on the podcast before. So it's basically a list of 100-plus races with explanations that are from first-hand experiences. It essentially explains what the races is, explain what the races are, provides links to their websites, and then kind of tells you, you know, different little different things about each brand and kind of what makes them unique. So uh, contributions from basically a dozen Mud Run Guide uh, contributors. So it's kind of a cool collaborative product. That's now available on the website. 
And then this will be the first time I announced this one on the podcast. So I just released another book. Uh, it's actually my autobiography. And it is uh, the profits, 100% of the profits for that book go to the charity Folds of Honor, which provides scholarship money for children whose parents were killed or wounded in action. So I'm not going to make any money off the sale of that book. But you should buy it because it supports charity and because I think I have a pretty interesting story. Uh, covers kind of like this brief chapter about me growing up. Uh, two, cha- two chapters about uh, my time in the military and special forces and my deployments. So it's all these like little war stories that some of them are pretty funny. Some of them are kind of scary. Some of them are funny scary, which are my favorite ones where you're like scared at the moment. And then in hindsight, they're funny because no one died. You can check those. You can check that out. And then it goes to like all the ridiculous ultra OCR things I've done. So there's like a chapter on my first world's toughest. There's a chapter on OCR America. There's a chapter on the Ultra OCR Grand Slam, so the f- six OCR, 24-hour OCRs I did in uh, 365 days. And there's a chapter on the 48-hour Endure the Gauntlet. And then there's some uh, some comments about some of the other world's toughest and uh, racing on CBS for Toughest Mudder. So pretty cool stuff there. Uh, the military stuff is... So I, I've, I've shared it with a couple of friends who don't know me that well. Well, not a couple of people who don't know me that well, and then a couple of friends... And a lot of them thought the military stuff was the most interesting, um, probably because they're obstacle course racers. But anyway, I wrote the book, so I think anyone can enjoy it. So if you literally know nothing about obstacle course racing, I think you can still get a lot of lessons out of that. And it's like, I would describe it as like 80% narrative story. And then I try to mix in, you know, lessons like I talked about in Mud Run Guide's Ultra OCR Bible into there. So it gives you practical examples of like, here's something that I talked about in the the training book and here's it actually applying in real life and kind of the result and things that I learned that I did poorly, things that I did well, uh, stuff like that. Uh, for some of the military service, uh, there's some pretty interesting stuff in there. Like, um, we helped do security at a mass grave that we found in, uh, Mahmoudi in Iraq in 2008. So that's one of the stories in there. There's us finding King Faisal's car, who is the original, uh, King of Iraq and from the movie Lawrence of Arabia, right? So we found his 1930s Rolls-Royce Phantom in Iraq in 2007, which was pretty insane. Uh, it was still in, like, mint condition. That's a crazy story. And then a couple of, uh, like I said, funny, scary stories of almost getting blown up and set on fire by IEDs or RPGs being shot at us, stuff like that. All the good stuff in there. You can check it out. Uh, it's called Ultra OCR Man, uh, from Special Forces Soldier to Record-Setting Obstacle Course Racer. So uh, please check that out again. 100% of the profit goes to the charity Folds of Honor. Uh, available at teamstrengthspeed.com. All right, that was a mouthful. Mark, thanks again for coming on. Sure. Last question for you, Evan. Uh, we're, you're, you, you two are a Pitch Perfect fan, I understand. Oh, huge Pitch Perfect fan. It's like so, uh, it's one which of the best was, trilogies. Which, which was your favorite, one, two, or three? Whew. Uh, I'll, I'll say second one is my least favorite. Um, I think the first one's probably my favorite because the original, but the third one was really close. The third one might be better. I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I go, I go with the second one. I, I love that German band and all the songs on that. So, yeah, I, I really? know more. More team guys have like gone right before going into combat. It's like, what? What did you watch? We watched Pitch Perfect. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> of all movies, you know, it was a Gladiator, it was a Braveheart. No, it's Pitch Perfect. <laughs> so that's really fun. So my platoon, we used to watch um, Step Up to the Streets. It's called. It's like a dance movie. <laughs> um, the Step Up Step Up One was like uh, 
it was like a ballet movie where the guy is like a janitor and the girl is a ballet dancer and they they dance together or something like that. That one's mediocre to poor. Mm. Um, Step up to the streets is more like uh, hip hop, I guess, dancing or like world of dance type stuff. Um, the Jabberwockies are in it. If you're familiar with that dance group, uh, no. they like wear like white masks. They have a show on in Vegas. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that was that was our combat movie on my uh, second deployment. So. Very cool. All right, Evan. No, it's been great, great chatting with you. Good, good luck with the uh, the podcast and your uh, OCR. I'll see you again, uh, I guess, in July. Yep, sounds good. Yeah, catch you later. Cool. All right, bye.